to produce that remotely from the other side of the planet was maybe the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. It almost doesn't matter how I get there, so long as I make them happy. I wake up every morning and I eat, sleep, and breathe magic and magic design. I love doing this. That's why we're here. Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Rob, And my name is Anna Aguilera. On this episode, we will be talking to Franz Harari about magic. Franz Harari continually redefines the art of magic through his work as a performer and visionary illusion designer. He's known for raising magic to the level of spectacle with his arena shows, and he has the distinction of being the first world-class magician to perform illusions entirely of his own design, winning international acclaim and the highest awards for his astounding achievements. Harari is responsible for bringing magic to the world of live concert productions, first for Michael Jackson and later for the biggest names in the music business, allowing them to create live on stage the kind of amazing visual effects seen in their music videos. His work has been featured on Broadway, in feature films, on every major television network and on numerous international programs, including his own global TV series, Magic Planet. The most successful theme parks in the world have benefited from Harari's vanguard approach to illusion and attraction design, including four of Disney's parks, Six Flags Magic Mountain, Sun Asia's Polar World in China and Seoul Land Korea. In 2015, he opened the House of Magic by Franz Harari, bringing his winning brand of high-impact entertainment to Macau. Currently under construction in China are two multi-million dollar marine parks conceived and designed entirely by Harari, proving his inventive genius is more than just magic. Harari, friends, friends, good to see you again. How are you? Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Where are we? Like geographically, where, where, where should I be imagining myself right now? Well, where are you physically now? Well, me, I, I'm physically in Michigan, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, there but you go. you're far away. You're you're in Asia. You're I'm in Hong in Kong. Australia. I'm in Hong Kong. Hong Kong. That's. I wish I was in Hong Kong. Better than Michigan. That's yeah. <laughs> and Anna's in North Carolina. Yeah, I'm in North Carolina. Oh well, enjoy that. Yeah, it's pretty, <laughs> and the weather is nice. Those days, it's sunny. Uh, well, yes. Anywhere better than Michigan. I'll, uh, that's all I give you. <laughs> So where do we start on your work and life? I mean, it's a very, very interesting career, but I know we're going to start to talk about illusion and magic and stuff, but right now you've been designing marine parks in China and uh, tell us about that. Well, I should say there's a story. I'm producing, a, uh, it's a massive park. It's indoors uh, called uh, Polar, Sun Asia's Polar World and another place uh, called um, Mystical Oceans. Basically. What I'm doing is taking the illusion principles, which we can talk about, and those psychologies, and applying them not in a show performance format, but rather applying them architecturally within the design. So all of the effects are germane to the environment. So uh, in this case, I'm trying to create the illusion that guests are literally underwater or going through a subaquatic experience without actually getting wet. But then there's a whole another element to all of this where um, I'm doing the show uh, called Ocean Dreams, which is basically 
it, at its core, it's a magic show, or I should say it's a mentalism show. If you're familiar with the, uh, the concept of mind readers, guys who will tell you your future or read your mind. But what I've done is the show has been designed uh, in such a way that the stars are not humans, but rather animals, marine mammals. So there, there's a segment, for example, where uh, guests will come up from the audience and they will each meet a dolphin and seemingly connect, you know, with the dolphin. And then that dolphin will read their minds and they're, and I'm creating the illusion of dolphin communication, doing a similar thing with beluga whales and walruses and sea lions. So it is trying to take uh, the animals themselves and elevate them. And, and I'll tell you where this came from is I've seen my share of circuses and I personally have a big fat problem with circuses because I feel as though the animals are always treated like props. There's the, the, the they're degraded and, and, you know, being an animal lover myself, it's, it's painful to see this. And I felt if I'm going to produce a show that is based in and around animals, the animals need to have dignity and they need to truly be seen as the stars and as the driving personalities in the show, if that makes any sense. So having said all of that, along comes COVID. And so all of the work that we did, train, we spent about a year and a half training the dolphins and on all of the different sea critters. They've forgotten everything. I'm talking to my guys in China. I talk to them every day. We've now got big, stupid, fat, happy dolphins that have forgotten everything they've ever been trained. So we're pretty much back to zero. So when the hell this show is going to open, I have no idea. You know, I, I, it, it might end up just, it might just end up being some magician in a wetsuit doing card tricks, you know? <laughs> That's amazing. And where are we talking about in China, friends? Jianjiang, if I'm saying it right, Jianjiang near Shanghai. Right. Uh, and then there's another complex uh, in Dalian, China. Uh, and then I've got another place that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Uh, but uh, remember, all these things are on hold. They're like frozen in time. It's like Chernobyl. You know, all the work that we did, suddenly it stopped. So I haven't been to these places since middle of January, you know? So I see them by videos and I look at my walrus friends, but, you know, uh, trying to get there, that's a whole other story, you know? Well, it sounds like a large scope of work, though. You must have, that, this must have, designing these parks must have taken you years. All said and done, it's about a four-year project. We were supposed to have been open and running and humming along. You know, we were planning on opening, I think it was June of 2020, June or July, in time for the summer season. And then all that, you know, just blew. It, you know when you take something and you put it into the trash in your Mac computer and it makes that sound, you know that sound? That's what my, my entire efforts there, they just, they just made that sound, you know? So, but, but I will tell you, if I can jump over to what I am doing right now is uh, we were able to open a project in Sanya, China. It's a place called Showtown in Sanya. Uh, that's produced with a company that I'm working with uh, called Sinocap out of Hong Kong, actually. Uh, and there, uh, we produced a magic-themed destination similar to what you saw in Macau. You came to my place, House of Magic in Macau. Imagine that, but uh, when it's, it's, it's about 30% done, when it's all finished, it'll be about five times the size. 
uh, we opened the first of four giant buildings. That building contains uh, retail, uh, food and beverage, uh, entertainment, and most importantly, a 2,000-seat theater. So in that theater is a show called Magic Stars. And the show opened up, it's, and for that matter, it's got some of the same magic as you saw at my place in Macau. Uh, and so uh, the overall project is a gazillion dollars. I don't think I'm allowed to say how much money, but it's a lot, you know. Uh, and it was opened by myself as the, um, as the front man, you know, as the, as the face of it, and an international team of magicians. So it's like a magic festival. We opened on January 19th of 2020, and we did four performances. And then we're ready to do show number five. Everything was set. All the equipment is set up backstage, wardrobe, props, everybody's ready. And somebody comes backstage, we didn't know, in a big black suit, looked very official and very government. And the next thing we know, they said, shut it down. So everything was stopped, again, frozen in time. And they told us, we're going to pick it up in a week. So don't go anywhere. We're going to start in a week, right? So time goes by and two days and three days and four days. And we're realizing this thing is not going to start up again in a week. So now when, when the writing was on the wall and we realized this is the beginning of the end for some indefinite period of time, I had to scramble to get my, my team of 27 people, most of them foreigners, out of China as fast as possible. So uh, remember, uh, we're booking flights. My, my office in Los Angeles is booking flights to Rio and, and Tokyo and Bangkok and LA and Mexico City, all over the planet where my crew goes. And literally as they're driving to the airport, flights are being canceled. So it felt, I, I can only equate it to the evacuation of Saigon. You know, if you remember, you know, pictures that we saw from the 1960s, of people scrambling to get onto aircraft. It, it was one of the more exciting moments of my life. Anyway, we got everybody out. So the show sat there for six months, seven months. And finally we decided, look, this is going too long. We, we, we've got to reopen the show. But myself and none of my foreign team could come back into the country. So I could only use the people that are on my team that are either from China or Macau or Taiwan. So we, I basically redirected, reproduced the whole show. I did it remotely from my phone, doing everything through uh, WeChat, you know, video call. I was able to replace myself with one of my staff members who is actually a magician, who's also my cameraman. He shoots the show. So he had shot the show so many times, he had learned the show. So now he's no longer a magician. He's, he's not just the cameraman, he's now the star magician. And I did this with all of the positions of the show. Uh, I was able to replace everybody to sort of open up a version of the show. It's not as big as it was when I was in it, but it's running and it's humming along and it's a show. So to produce that remotely from the other side of the planet was maybe the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Maybe it was a, yeah, it was a real brain screw. I believe that's the technical term. <laughs> what made it so difficult? To produce a show, it's very much a hands-on thing. And so you need to be on stage. You need to be able to communicate to the performers. You need to, and, and very often, get on stage and do it. You know, it's, and it's not just the performance, but it's the motion of light, sound, video, staging, everything. 
it's a very physical act. If you look, if you see, especially guys that are directing live shows, even more than film, it's very physical. You're on stage, often acting it out yourself, teaching everybody. And in this case, I couldn't do that. You know, I was sitting in my office in, in my sweatpants in Los Angeles doing this on my phone. So, but we got it open and then like every show, it kind of finds itself. It took about a week or so. And what happened is the show gelled and it became its own animal. And now I'm quite proud of it, actually. So do you think it took your uh, communication skills to a new level? Uh, yes. And I've also learned just how high my blood pressure can go. So I've become stronger in the process. What's up with like you like all this illusion big big shows, but also you're all very passionate about the little magic and the intimate stuff. So, what's interesting is, firstly, my world is uh, it's a really a big medium. You know, I kind of made a name for myself uh, making big things disappear. You know, the Taj Mahal, the space shuttle, and the, you know all that stuff, the pyramids, but. Today, the most powerful magic isn't necessarily big. If you look at what's going on, like you know, my friend Lu Chen, he's made a career out of doing things that are relatively small, you know, things that you can hold in your hands. Now, truth be told, I'm not that guy. There are thousands of magicians out there that have spent their lives teaching themselves, training to become skilled sleight-of-hand artists. It's called close-up magic. I have an incredible amount of respect for it, but it's not me. Uh, the world that I play in is bigger because I feel like I can reach more people live. I can, I can communicate with a bigger audience if I'm playing with cars and boats and airplanes and people than if I'm doing something with cards and coins. So it's a, it's a, and also it comes from my work in the music industry. You know, I began way before you were born, designing illusions for Michael Jackson and then everybody else after that. Uh, and when you're creating magic for concerts, you need to reach, you, you need to visually reach and connect with the very last person in the very far side of the, of the, of the arena. You know, if we're playing, uh, very early on, my first gig, actually, first gig ever was Michael Jackson's victory tour. And we're doing anywhere from uh, 50 to 70,000 people per audience. So really, without knowing what I was doing, I was forced to learn how to create magic for stadium audiences, which is a weird skill that really wasn't out there. So without intentionally doing so, I developed, and again, I was like 20, 21 years old when I was doing this, but without intending to do so, I developed a series of formulas that allow me to create very, very large visual magic effects uh, outdoors, often in terrible conditions, rain, wind, um, in some cases, uh, uh, almost, you know, 100 and, I'm sorry, almost 280 degrees, which is pretty brutal, you know, but, but it wasn't that I wanted to come up with these, the, these new magic design philosophies. It's that I had no other choice. And I was so young that I didn't realize that I was inventing something new. I was just solving a problem. And that is then something that I've carried with me throughout the rest of my career. I still use the things that I came up with when I was 21 years old. 
And I think, you know, that kind of must have, do you think that then forged your path of how intricately you are involved in all the technical elements of your creations because you you were pushed into that realm where you had to figure things out? And and that those are, those are really the foundations now of the things that you create and work. And Right, right. Well, there, you know, there's a there, there's this weird phenomena within the magic community, and that is most magic, most illusions, and even the stuff that I do, the genuine artistry is in the design of the equipment. In other words, I, I take a lot of pride in being able to produce an illusion show that is in and of itself a kind of clockwork machine, so that theoretically, I could take you and in an afternoon, I could turn you into a magician. Now, you might not be a good magician, but you'll at least be able to get through the show without killing somebody. So that is only possible because of how the entire production is designed as this kind of, as I said, clockwork machine. So what happens in magic, in the magic community, there are thousands of, to be quite honest, bad magicians all over the world but what they've done is they bought magic equipment online. So once they bought the magic box, it's almost like running a microwave oven. You know, you just hit a but couple buttons and turn a dial and wait for it to bing and you're a magician, you know? So you've got a lot of guys out there doing that. To me, that's not art. At best, it's a craft because you're, you're basically just making the same donut that a thousand guys before you have made. I think magic has over the years been lost as an art form. As you know, an art form, like every art form, everybody who's listening to it understands it is, it is the communication of the human experience. It's, it's a way to connect with an audience and let them understand who you are as a person, who you are with your values and your views, and then share that. And, and, it's, and it's that experience. That's what art is, right? So in the case of magic, because you're literally buying a microwave and turning on the button, that has nothing to do with you and the communication of who you are. So magic can be that, and it should be that. It should be art. And it was art. And forgive me for going off on this tangent here. But to go back, if you look through magic history, Chinese magic it, and all magic, it's always driven by the hopes and dreams of the culture that created it. To go to Chinese magic, a lot of that is making rice appear and making fish appear. And you're going, well, why is all this food appearing? Well, because China was hungry for a long time, you know? You go to Indonesia, Southeast Asia, and you've got the Dubus and the people who are basically, they're putting spears through their, through their cheeks and they're deforming themselves and they're overcoming pain. And you go, well, why is that? And again, you're living in a world that's on the... On the uh, the Pacific Rim filled with earthquakes and volcanoes and just awful things. So to them, magic is overcoming peril and overcoming pain. Myself as an American, you go to Vegas and I'm making cars and boats appear. We are capitalists. So our dream is stuff, more stuff. Give me stuff. So in every case, magic really truly is that reflection of the values of the culture. And in that, it is, it is an art form. So go back to full circle. If you buy a microwave oven and you wave your hands and you let it go, bing, and that's magic, you're not communicating anything about yourself. So I feel as though myself, to be an artist, to be genuinely an artist, I need to be 
inventing new magic that communicates who and what I am and what I think and feel. And in the invention of that comes with it, not just the magic effect, but as you saw in Macau, the creation of a world, of a place in which I can bring an audience to. And that means understanding and controlling and designing lighting, sound, LED, staging, wardrobe, the whole thing. Back to uh, my place in Macau, uh, every doorknob, every hinge, and every, every piece of carpeting you saw, I drew because I felt that I needed to create an environment, a universe that I could bring guests to and then would allow them to not only suspend disbelief, but to hopefully recapture some of that wonder that we all had when we were little kids. There's a massive answer to a very simple question. No, but I think it's fascinating. I also makes me wonder that long answer also means that you have to have a very deep knowledge of yourself and the culture you insert yourself onto and your show. And then as well of the intrinsic characteristics of the human being to be able to twist and see where those cultural differences lay on and how you can manipulate that. And that's not easy to do. Man, you got that right. It's firstly, it is about understanding how people think. And what I've learned is that if I can understand how they think, then to a degree, I can control what they think. And if you can control what someone thinks, in turn, you can control what they see. Because your reality is only a product of what your brain tr translates. And that's a whole other subject right there. So that is how to create the illusion. That, that's the, the psychological function of how to create an illusion on a stage or you know, really on any live format. But then, as you touched on, there's another dynamic at play. And that is, depending on where you go in the world, magic, by definition, means different things, you know? If you go, if you look at the West in the United States and, and Western countries, magic is an art form. Well, as we've talked about, sometimes not. But it's basically entertainment, you know? It's something you go see, like you might go see a singer or a dancer or a juggler or whatever it is, you know? Hey, let's, hey kids, let's go see a magic show. If you go to the Middle East, uh, Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, Dubai, this, this part of the planet, and I've spent my share of time there, there, magic is real. It is, it is embedded in the culture. And I personally have had some trouble working there because it was a, a nonstop campaign to ensure audiences, to ensure the market that what I was doing was not real, that what I do is an illusion. It, it's purely entertainment. It's, you know, it's Disneyland. So we even had to, at one point, we didn't call it a magic show. We called it an illusion circus. This was you know, like 20 years ago. So there, you have to overcome that, you know. If you go to China and even Hong Kong, where one of us is sitting right now, there, magic is a puzzle to be deciphered. Point blank, you know. Chinese people go to a magic show to try to figure out how is the magician doing it. So, and, and I see this all the time. 
I see, especially guys, guys feel challenged by this. So you see them whispering over to their wives and girlfriends, this is, look, that's how he does this. This is how he does this. And pretty much they're wrong most of the time, but they feel good because they think they're right. And they're feeling very, you know, emasculated because they're able to tell their partners that I have figured out the secret for you. Aren't I great? You know, let's make babies. So in China, it is purely a puzzle. And that's fine. And once I've came to realize that, quite honestly, I stopped worrying so much about the story of it all. I basically just put cool images on a stage and then say, all right, go ahead and figure it out. Because that's what, you know, that's what it's going to end up being in the end anyway. Going back to my friend Lu Chen, uh, he has had trouble in that when he does something on television, 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, it's already been deciphered. And the secret, the, the method is already online, you know? So not only is the puzzle deciphered very quickly, but the solution is put online. So his magic's shelf life is very, very short. Mine is a little longer, but still relatively short in China. And I've even many times, I should say, looked out into an audience and I've seen people on their mobile phones searching. You don't Google search in China, but you're searching online to find the secret to what it is they're watching me do on stage. So, and that's fine too, because, hey, it's, it's so long as they're happy, if I can make them smile and if I can give them a good time for a couple hours, then I've done my job. And it, it almost doesn't matter how I get there, so long as I make them happy. <laughs> that's great. What's your... Your, what's your method then if uh, from a live show and a creation of that to a more immersive thing that like a theme park? Does your creative process and approach change when you're doing something that is more peripheral and an experience as opposed to a show? I can tell this show is definitely an industry program because that's not a question I get very often. It is, yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. It is when you do a show and any director producer will tell you this. When you do a show, you try to create a world and then create a scenario, a sequence of events that takes the audience on a journey. It's a visual journey. It's a, you know, the storytelling, it's, it's a journey. When you're designing a fixed attraction, a theme park or an independent uh, smaller attraction, that story, that journey begins the moment they park their car or the moment they get out of the bus or out of the taxi. Right then and there, the story starts, the show starts, the experience begins, and everything needs to be calculated from going up to the ticket window to get your ticket, to walk through security, to walking onto the property, into the destination. Everything needs to be by design to push forward that single illusion that I'm trying to create. Now, I'd love to say that I invented this, but quite honestly, this is Disney. You know, Disney and Universal, they are the kings of this. But by studying those formulas, what I've been able to do is springboard off of that and then apply my own illusion theories and my own knowledge of magic design to kind of bump it up, amp it up. So it's, it's almost Disney on steroids because the experience that the audience walks into kind of hits you in the face from the moment you get there. You know, and as we're with Disney, there's a little bit of a process. You're kind of getting warmed up. 
it's going to take a little bit of time before you actually see Mickey Mouse. Yeah. So how do you explain your 18-year-old self uh, all the all these processes and how you got here? And were you aware of all the psychological and sociological, I don't know, like research to a point that you were doing and that you are doing? How do I explain this to my 18-year-old self? Yeah, you know, like when you were going to talk, go and talk to Michael Jackson and say, hey, oh God. let's just figure out how the people oh, think so man. we can... Oh, show them a show. Oh, no. I, yeah, I was so out of my league. I had no idea what I was doing. And you know what? I will say that to a degree, okay, let, let, me, take that, let me take that and jump over to faction. I'll give you a kind of a side answer because this, this is something that I realized like during COVID. I came to this realization. Everything that I do, I try to top myself. Michael Jackson, who was a friend for 26 years, very early on, he told me, he said, Franz, whatever you do, do it different and better than anybody else. And that's really kind of become my personal life mantra. So I always try to top myself. But what's happened is there came a time in the early 90s where I kind of, I got good at all the basic stuff, you know, what you think of as a magician. And so I found myself kind of floating around in my own little world there, in my own little, you know, stratosphere. But in an effort to keep topping myself, in an effort to keep growing, I realized that whatever I do would have to be experimental. And so I can honestly say that everything I've done since like 1992, 93, everything I've done that has meant anything, I was never 100% sure if it's going to work. I was slightly out of my league. You know, I was always taking a bit of a gamble. And as the illusions got bigger and the toys got bigger, in some cases, those became million-dollar gambles, you know? House of Magic in Macau didn't know if that was going to work. Even this project in Sanya, I was pretty sure it's going to work. But I'm doing some stuff here that I'd never done before, doing uh, magic, integrating it with LED video effects. I saw it in my mind, and I was pretty sure it was going to work, but I wasn't 100% certain until I got up and physically did it and physically experimented. And I'll tell you, there's, there's nothing that will raise your pulse and you know just tighten every orifice in your body than knowing that you are selling a product that's not totally proven, but that the stakes are very high. And what it does is it makes you rise to the occasion and it makes you, it, it really elevates you as, as, a, as a producer, as a director, as an artist. It certainly took me to places that I didn't expect to be. Now, having said all that, there's always an out. So what I'll do is whatever it is that I'm selling to the client, I'm going to sell them something at a, at a nine or 10. I'm going to say on a scale of one to 10, you're going to, you're going, I'm selling you a 10. Now I'm going to go out and try to produce a 12. I'm not charging for the 12 and I'm not even telling them that I'm working on the 12, but that's my end goal. So if for some reason I fail, I'm still producing and delivering the 10 and everybody's happy. Having said that, and I should knock on wood as I say this, I have been consistently able to deliver a 12. And every time I deliver those two little points more, I grow 
as an artist and producer, and I'm able to use that. And that now becomes the new 10 for my next project. Does that make sense? Totally. It's a good approach. I don't even remember what the actual question was, to be honest. But no, It's great. And so in your foray into the theme park world, did, you, did, did people approach you or did you approach them? How did that um, relationship work? Uh, I had done work for, well, when you do work for Disney, you're not allowed to say what you did. So I can't say what I did. But I had learned from some work that I did for Disney. And I realized that there is an opportunity here, you know? And so I started really kind of pursuing it myself. And then once I had some success, once I had a couple feathers in my hat, then projects started to come to me. Uh, you know, all of the, uh, the, the aquarium, the marine mammal stuff I'm doing, that fell into my lap. You know, I never fancied myself a walrus guy, but now I am, you know? So it's, it just sort of one project begets another. I'm sure it's true for, for all of the professional listeners that you've got going the same. You know, if you have a, at first, you got to really sell yourself. You got to get out there and hustle. But then there comes a point in your career where you've got enough, you know, Girl Scout badges that people start coming to you because you've shown, uh, you know, you've shown a history of success of delivery. So that's where I am right now, luckily. But but I work like hell to get here, you know. And it, but it, where you are is such a unique niche, you know. Like not many people is going to be this magician illusionist slash theme park designer realm, you know. Uh, I think I'm it. <laughs> Maybe there, if there's others out there, I'd love to meet them because you know there'd be a lot of bonding going on. But I think you are I, it. It's you and yeah. no one else. <laughs> I would. I would love to have a buddy that I can talk to, you know. Well, I think that's a, a little bit what you were saying about um, a lot of people trying to copy, but then they will copy the, the, you know, but you're ahead a step because you're creating and you're the artist, as you mentioned, while the others, they're just trying to imitate what's already done, you know, like. Right. It's, and it's difficult in my industry. It's. A difficult game. It's a game of cat and mouse, you know, because there's so much piracy, especially, you know, on, on in the Eastern Hemisphere. It's it's crazy. It's out of control, you know. And uh, and I'm gonna save myself a lot of uh, you know nasty uh, social media. I won't name names, but there are parts of the planet that are far more severe than others, and all I can do. I used to police it. I, I, I had a, a, two attorneys full time, and all they did was run around the world going after guys, you know? And what's happened now is I've got enough of a formula. So when I see somebody ripping me off, it, it used to cost a lot of money to, you know, to sick my lawyers on them. Now it's just an inconvenience because I kind of figured out how to do it. But luckily, I don't need to worry about it anymore. I, can, I know what to do to try to stop it. And that allows me to continue focusing on the next thing. You know, I mean, all of us, and again, I'm, I'm speaking to all of the other producer designers out there that are listening to this. If you've got any success, it's not because you did this for the money. It's because we freaking love what we do. You know, I wake up every morning and I eat, sleep and breathe magic and magic design. I love doing this. That's why we're here. Because if you don't love doing it, the work is, it's ridiculous. I, I work, you know, 
14 hours a day, 16 hours a day, because I, it's what I love. When you do that, eventually you'll be successful and eventually make some money. Going back to the piracy issue, because I am in this, because I love doing it, having been able to deal with the piracy meant that I was able to return to focusing on the creation of new material, of new magic. And in that, I can kind of remain ahead of the game. So I'm, I'm almost surfing this wave of piracy. You know, it's uh, the best I can do is stay a couple years ahead of everybody else. I know that there's going to be guys that are going to try to emulate me and rip me off, which by the way, let me tell you, when someone rips you off, there is nothing complimentary about that. It is not any great honor to be ripped off, but that's what you hear all the time. Back to what I was saying is I'm, I'm not at the point where I'm really just looking forward and I, I don't worry too much about what's going on in my wake. Surfing the wave of piracy. I love that. I think I need to use that. <laughs> it's a wonderful sentence. I really enjoy that. <laughs> I, I can also vouch for the way that you are a continual creator because when I come to see you back, came to see you backstage, you were in between shows. It was a very short amount of time. And I believe there was sketches of some of the theme park stuff you'd started to work on. And so and it was it was a mountain of creativity just in that small space in between. And then you Dropped all that and went and did a show. It was amazing. I will tell you something that I have never told anybody in a public forum ever. It's sort of exciting to tell you this. I am to the point in my career where once a show is opened, once it's a thing, I'm proud of it, but I'm sort of over it. I want to go on to the next thing. I want to make the next thing. And I'm always creating the next thing to where, to, to such a degree, to where when it comes time to do a show, it's just a pesky inconvenience to my day. It's like, ah, I have to stop making this new thing so that I have to put on my microphone and jump on stage for an hour and a half. All right, we did this, good. Now let me get back to working on what I was working on, you know? So it's when I tell other, I've told a couple other magicians of that and they think I have absolutely lost my brain. You know, because most performers, maybe all, they live for that applause. They live for that, that love that you get from strangers. It's a, it's a rush. It's a rush you can get from no one else, you know? You can have your parents tell you you're great and your friends, but it's not the same as having thousands of strangers tell you you're great. So most performers I know, they just get off on that. That is, that is sex to them. But I'm at a point where it's fun and it's nice. But it's not nearly as big a rush as I get from inventing something new and putting it out there, hoping it doesn't blow up, and then watching the reaction from that new thing to see what it does, to see what happens next. That is such a rush, and it's, it's difficult to put into words. Even as I'm explaining this, I'm, I'm realizing I'm probably not articulating it very well. But it's, it's all about creating that next thing and seeing what happens. It's a little bit of conversation we've had with uh, or before with different people and uh, this difference that there is sometimes between the performer and the artist and both are equally valuable in the industry, but one prefers the stage for the stage sake kind of thing and the other one needs to create and needs to experiment and go for this new thing and always chasing this like what's next 
what do I do next? How do I get this better? How do I improve on this? And that's it. That's exactly it. So where do we where do people find you, uh, friends on on your social media accounts, like social media website? Go to my Facebook fan page, Franz Harari. Uh, it's your audio, so you have to spell it out. F like Fox, R-A-N-Z-H-A-R-A-R-Y, fan page, or franzrari.com. You know what? Go to my, go to my uh, website. You can do, actually do magic on the website. There's some interactive stuff you can do there. Oh, for that matter, I can do magic for you right here. You want to you you do a little magic? Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Are you, are you both sitting down? I assume you're sitting down. We are. Okay. I want you to take your right foot out and just stick it out in the air. Okay. Now you doing that right foot pointed out in the air. Now take your right hand and point out in the air. Okay. Your right hand pointing out in the air. Now with your right foot, I want you to start making a clockwise circle. Just make a circle in the air with your right foot. Okay. Are you making a clockwise circle with your right foot? Okay. Keep doing that. Don't stop. And now with your hand, with your right finger in the air, <laughs> draw the number six. Go ahead. It's really hard. Give it a try. <laughs> draw the number six. Yeah. And what? And you see what happened there? This is your brain short circuiting. It's how we're wired. No. <laughs> you know, it's it's. By the way, I hope you're not doing that while you're driving. So. But it, it is short circuits that are going on in your brain. And what I do is, is I've, I've come to discover these flaws, and I actually use these little glitches against you. At its core, that's how magic works. That's how illusions work. I, I, I find these little uh, mistakes between, in connections between the left and right side of your brain, and that's sort of that misinterpretation, that's where magic lives. So, but go to my go to my website, check it all out, see all the videos and stuff disappearing and all that. And, and my Facebook page. Did I did I hype my face? Have I hyped the Facebook page? Hey, you know what? I I I've got a fan page. I do a talk show called Talking Magic. Uh, we've done eighty six shows. So this started as a COVID thing. I thought it was going to go for a couple months. And what? So is the one you call the quarantine talk? It was it was called quarantine talk, and then quarantine stopped. So I started calling it uh, talking magic, and poof, we're back in quarantine. So, but I can't change graphics again. So whatever whatever the hell it's called, it's still running, and and I'm interviewing really just the best magicians in the world. I've had Lou Chen, Michael Carbonaro, Lance Burton, you know, killer just killer magicians. Um, so check it out; they're all there on my Facebook page. Tune in Tuesdays, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. New York time, whatever that is. That's 10 o'clock in the morning, Wednesday in Hong Kong. Good time conversion, friends. I'm impressed. Yeah, that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. You know, I mean, I'm sure we could spend hours with you, friends, but really, we really appreciate your time and um, insight into your world. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciate it. Perfect. Well, listen, I I wish I was with you in Hong Kong. Well, that, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll it's see. on the top of my list. We'll see you again when the airways open. You got that. All right. Enjoy. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, friends. Bye-bye. 
We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theater Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theater Art Live, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theaterartlive.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theater Art Live podcast.